0: Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. My name is Ainane. I'm a graduate student at Harvard University and a CID student ambassador. This week, we are joined by Severin Altser, author and professor and chair of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. I'm speaking with Severin after her appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on October 7th, where she talked based on her latest book, The Front Lines of Peace and told the stories of the ordinary, yet extraordinary individuals and communities that have found effective ways to confront violence. Severin, we are excited to have you here. Well, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, the great strength of the front lines of peace is that it offers a radical reorientation of what peace building entails. So, why did you decide to write this book? What did you observe that made you think,
1: oh, I've got to write this? Well, I observed that that violence is prevalent in, in the world, that we have 2 billion people who live under the threat of violence. They live in more than 50 conflict zones around the world. And so I thought peace building is really a crucial task for all of us, for all of us ordinary people, for states, for international institutions. And the thing is that I've shown in my previous two books that our usual techniques for approaching war and peace, they just don't work. Whether we talk about Afghanistan, Colombia, Congo, Syria, Ukraine, Myanmar, it's always the same story. There is violence. The United Nations got involved. Donald's country placed millions in assistance. Warring parties called for ceasefire. They signed agreement. They hold election. And then you see in the newspapers, everybody is praising peace. And then a week or two later, sometimes just a few days later, violence flows up again. And sometimes the violence never actually stops. You know that more than half of all of the wars currently ongoing in the world have already lasted for more than 20 years. And that in in just the past five years, wars have spawned the worst refugee crisis since World War II. And I've done a lot of work in in conflict zones, uh, 12 different conflict zones around the world. And whenever I talk with residents of war torn countries, uh, they tell me that they're really fed up with uh, what they call the inability of governments, peacekeepers, international institutions to end violence. And when I was doing my research, I realized that uh, there has been a lot of discussion about what has gone wrong uh, when we've tried to stop wars in the past. And so I thought, well, but now we need to flip the question and we need to think about what has gone right. So
0: what has gone right in peace-building efforts? What is your main argument in that show?
1: So in the front lines of peace, I show that, well, contrary to what most politicians preach, building peace doesn't require billions in aid. It doesn't require massive international interventions. Instead, it often involves giving power to ordinary citizens. Ultimately, Many successful examples of peace building in the past few years have involved innovative grassroots initiatives led by local people and sometimes supported by foreigners, often using methods shunned by the international elite. So in the front lines of peace, rather than focusing on abstract peace agreements and handshakes between presidents and negotiations between government and rebel leaders, in the book, I, I detail the stories and the concrete everyday actions that actually make a difference on the ground. And I think you've read the book, so you remember some of them are really bizarre, some are creative, some involve eight old traditions, and some are just common sense. And the Frontlines of Peace explains how peacebuilding can work better so that we can finally improve the lives of billions of people. And you asked for the central argument, and to me, the central argument is that to end violence from war and and also to address violent conflicts at home, wherever home is, whether it's Boston, like here, New York, where I'm from, uh, Fort de France, where I live, or Saint-Jean-de-Montagu, we have to fundamentally change the way we view and build peace. So you make your arguments through stories. Is there a story that encapsulates this argument? Yes, there is. There is the story that actually inspired the cover artist for the book. It's a story that takes place in Congo, in the midst of one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II. And it's a story that starts in 2004. In 2004, a little boy named Luca was kidnapped and he was forced to work for armed groups uh, and for rebels. And Luca was so tiny, so small at the time, that he couldn't even hold a rifle. So his commanders would march him up front, and they would use him as a human shield. And somehow Luka survived, and after three years with the armed groups, the militia commanders released him, and they sent him back home to his mother, Justin. But Luca had trouble assimilating. He hated school. Uh, he was often hungry because his mom didn't have much money. And he still believed what his commanders had drilled into him, that the only way to survive was to use violence. So Luca kept running away to join militias. Basically, the only time he felt safe was when he had a gun in his hands. So at that time, he was eight, eight years old. And this was the only life that he knew. And meanwhile, here in the United States, there was a young Indian American woman uh, named Vijaya Takor and Vijaya was working for various organizations focused on Congo. And Vijaya was growing very uncomfortable with her work because her colleagues used the traditional top-down approach to peace building. They relied on outsider skills and expertise, and as a result, they ended up harming the very people that they wanted to help. So for instance, Most of Vijaya's colleagues believe that violence in Congo was due to the illegal exploitation of natural resources, like, you know, coltan and diamond, so they focused their time and efforts on advocating for new laws on conflict minerals, but the new legislations cost many vulnerable people their jobs, and then these people had to join armed groups in order to survive. So whenever Vichaya traveled to Congo, she started asking ordinary citizens what they believed would lead to peace. And eventually she decided to try something in the very village where Justin and Luca were living. In partnership with local activists, Vijaya organized lengthy meetings and workshops so that the residents would develop their own analysis of their community's conflict, so that they would decide on the best answers to their problems, and so that they would implement the solutions. And so the first part of the plan that the villagers came up with was for Vijaya and her fellow activists to give out $40 each to a few village women, including Justine, who used the money to start small businesses like tailoring or donut shop. The businesses took off and soon the participants had enough money to implement the second part of their plans. So they installed tabs for clean drinking water and they organized trainings for the teachers to learn how to curb ethnic violence rather than fueling it. And eventually they lobbied local authorities for protection and better services. So Luca, you remember, the little boy, he now had three meals a day. He had shoes without holes. And he had role models who didn't use violence to survive and to gain power. And like that all of the villagers were safer and they were healthier. And one day, Vijaya was talking with Justin, and Justin kept using the word success to refer to the whole initiative. And it was because Luca had turned 13 and for the very first time in his life, he was speaking in the future tense. Mm-hmm. So he had stopped running away all the time and he was making plans, peaceful plans within his community. And Justin, his mama, she said, my son now wants to hold a pencil instead of again. And so that's the inspiration for the cover of my book. It, it's a good continuation. So Vijaya... Decided to create the Resolve Network. And the Resolve Network has helped more than 8,000 people over the past 10 years. So, all were people at risk of being recruited by armed groups, and more than half of them actually were former combatants like Luga. And you know that militias have formed and formed in Congo. The pressure to remobilize has been enormous, but not a, no, actually, one only a single person, only one person participating in the RESOLVE programs has either started or gone back to fighting. And to me, the story really encapsulates uh, the argument I make in the book because there are really big differences between the way most peace-building organizations work and what Vijaya did. Because to start... Vijaya didn't come and impose her beliefs, and that way she avoided doing more harm than good. Instead, she really uh, worked with grassroots organizations and with local people. And she was humble, she was respectful, and she made sure that ordinary citizens were in the driver's seat. And so my book just how we can all emulate uh, people like Vijaya so that we can help uh, citizens who live under the threat of violence like Justine and Luca. The standard international
0: peacebuilding strategy, what you call Peace Inc, involves a broad collection of actors including foreign governments, international organizations, nonprofits and private contractors. I know you're very critical of the standard international peacebuilding
1: strategy. Why? Because they use a strategy that doesn't and that cannot work. This whole industry that, as you know, I call Peace Inc, uh, relies on misleading and detrimental assumptions, like the idea that only top-down intervention can end on violence. So we have to work with governments, with elites, with foreign peace builders. Uh, the idea that uh, all good things come together. So, for instance, that elections naturally lead to peace. Well, we know that it never happens. Uh, and the idea that only outsiders have the required skills and expertise to build peace, while well, I show in the book that it's completely wrong. And so that's why I'm extremely critical of this international strategy, because it often does actually more harm than good. Okay.
0: The operation of Peace Inc. is fundamentally at odds with the type of local and diverse peace building necessary for sustainable peace. And this is a result of systematic features of peace building industry. And given these inherent features, how the Peace Inc. system, which is top-down controlling, could exist parallel to the bottom-up approach?
1: You're assuming here that I'm saying we need to have two parallel systems, that's not what I'm saying at all in the book. In the book, I say we need a complete overhaul of the entire system. We need to merge the top-down and the bottom-up system. So uh, like hearing, hearing your question, it reminds me of, do you know this story about uh, Louis XIV on the eve of Bastille Day? I love this story. The Duke de La Rochefoucauld uh, when, was his advisor and he came to see Louis Fourteenth, who was the king uh, in 1789 in France. Uh, and he told him, hey, sire, sire, please wake up. People have stormed the Bastille and you know there there are riots all over Paris. Uh, and Louis XIV, he looks at him and he's like, oh, so is it a revolt? And La Rochefoucauld said, oh no, sire, it's not a revolt it's a revolution and that's exactly what i'm trying to say in the book we don't need a revolt we need an actual revolution but a peaceful revolution
0: so despite all of that you still see a role for outsiders in conflict zones why is that
1: because when you talk with inhabitants of war-torn countries when you talk with grassroots peace builders when you talk with local leaders they don't tell you you know we want to get treated of outsiders we don't we want to get rid of foreigners they tell you we want a different kind of foreigners we want a different kind of help of outside help And in the front lines of peace, when I did the research for that book, I saw a lot of original, really out-of-the-box approaches by interveners, outsiders, who come from all kinds of different countries and who work for very different organizations in very different countries, and who really do manage to make a difference, a positive difference, both at the highest legal level, so really with elite negotiations, and also on the ground.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you, because outsiders could bring significant resources, encourage international collaborations, and provide moral and political support to local people. And for foreign intervention to be effective, they must crumble head local contacts and draw on knowledge, perspectives, and networks of both insiders and outsiders. So I know we have a few international peace builders in the audience. What can they learn from your model peace builders, and how can they emulate them? they can learn a lot of things. And,
1: and I have an entire chapter that's really going through, I think it's chapter six in the book, yeah, that, that, that goes through that. And I have a very nice uh, stick figure that summarizes everything. So there are a lot of lessons we can learn from these peace builders. So the main one is uh, my model peace builders don't think that as outsiders, that they know better that they have the right theories, skills, and expertise, and that they bring the ideal solutions to people's problems. But instead, they respect local residents, they listen to them, and they're humble. They understand that other people may have a different understanding of peace, of democracy, of development, different priorities. Uh, the second lesson that's really important is that mobile peace builders, the people who are really effective, they usually know the local context well. So they have at least some local network and they speak the local languages. And to achieve that, most of them, and that's lesson number three, they stay on site for four years. Uh, Sometimes they stay on site for decades. Another really important lesson is that peace builders who, outside peace builders who are effective, don't place themselves at the forefront of peace efforts and they don't put their stickers and their logos everywhere, and they don't claim that everything is thanks to them. Instead, they remain low profile, and they, stern, they turn the spotlight on the achievements of their local partners. So local staff, local organizations, ordinary people. They, they're they also very flexible, and, and that's lesson number five. Uh, uh, they keep adapting their strategies based on the results and feedback that they get, and the way the situation evolves. And the last, Crucial point is that model peace builders, outside peace builders, understand that sometimes there are really hard choices to make because sadly, not all good things come together. So, sometimes we may have to choose between two very worthy goals like peace and justice or between peace and democracy. And the best interveners understand that they shouldn't be the ones who make these choices, but the people who have to live with the consequences of a decision should be the ones making it. What about people who don't plan on going to war zones to work there? Can they get anything from the book? They can get a lot from the book. Uh, and, And that's with people like that in mind that have also written the book. And that's why the last chapter is entirely about what we can all do in our own communities and how we can use the lessons that we learn from all of these people who work in war zones to improve the situations in in our own communities to decrease violence and to to resolve conflicts ranging from inner city conflict to political ethnic and religious divide
0: great thank you very much and my last question will be what do you want your readers to most get from the book
1: Huh? i want them to get hope uh, because The Frontlines of Peace is really a book about hope. It's a book about ordinary people who have managed to make a difference and to decrease violence all around them. So, to me, The Frontlines of Peace is a book about how each and every one of us can really change the world. Great. Thank you very much, Severin. Well, thank you so much for having me. You can find more information about Serene's work at
0: serenautzac.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at SeverinAR. Thanks again to Serene for taking the time to talk with us. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.